0: Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m., worship at 9.30 a.m., or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth, as we go home today and watch football and whatever you're going to watch, isn't it nice to see the improvement in television? (laughs) That was the live broadcast um, on June 2nd, 1953, Um, probably the latest and most known coronation um, of our time. Um, There's there's coronations that happen all around the world with different uh, kings and queens, but obviously Queen Elizabeth in England is the most well-known. just a few facts about this coronation. The whole service was three hours long. Um, and so, yeah, think about that. We hate when weddings go a little long. Um, the amount of guests that were invited and attended Westminster Abbey, 8,251 guests. This is an amazing stat, okay? Out of 36 million people that live in the UK, 27 million watched it on TV. So just think, right now in the United States, we have about uh, 327 million. People, that would be the equivalent of 245 million people watching an event on television. It's an amazing stat. Like 114 million watch a Super Bowl. So it's double that and more. It's just an amazing stat. 30,000 men participated in the procession through the streets after the coronation. Um, little neat fact, Prince Charles, um, who's still waiting to sit on the throne. He may never even make it. Uh, we'll just skip right over to Harry. Uh, not Harry. Who's, a, what's, who's the people that know? Whoa, man, you guys know. That was going to be my next question is, like, for a lot of people, this whole, like, monarchy thing is, like, you could care less. How many of you, that's where you're at? Like, I literally care less, okay? Okay, that's, like, 35% of the room. The rest of you, like, how many of you, like, are really into that whole monarchy thing? Like, you watch the wedding and all of that. Just be proud of it. It's okay. Okay. It's good. All right? There's nothing wrong with that. I, I remember growing up, um, my, my mom was really into all of this world. Um, we had books of like Princess Diana on our coffee table, and um, they would change every couple years. Um, and I remember the, the night that she was killed in the tunnel, um, just watching that footage, uh, because my mom was really into that whole world. And uh, it's just a fascinating thing. And so you say, all right, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, 1953, what does that have to do with this morning? Well, if you would turn with me to First Samuel chapter 10, we're continuing our journey through 1 Samuel. We're going to be in verses 17 to 27 today. Today we're going to see the coronation of King Saul. Um, if our, in our last passage uh, that we covered two weeks ago, there was a private anointment by Samuel where he anointed Saul to be the future king. And now the people have gathered together for the public coronation of King Saul to be the first king of Israel. Um, So just a definition of what is a coronation. It's the ceremony of crowning a sovereign. It's a ceremony of an individual taking his or her rightful place on the throne of power. And so as we go through our passage today, we literally have unfolding before us in our passage a, a ceremony, a coronation ceremony of sorts. And so that's how we're going to walk through this today. It's just we are part of the coronation taking place. And you're going to see there's some similarities to a modern coronation. Um, and then there's some major differences um, of this first coronation for King Saul and what we just witnessed. Now, everything is so timed out um, at a typical coronation. I mean, everything. It's, it's TV. There's, like, cameras. It's, it's everything. And so as we read this passage together, Let's just keep that in mind, the unfolding of an order of ceremony that takes place. And so I'm going to start reading, um, Saul proclaimed king. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, us, I brought us Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent the people away, each one, to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. So as this ceremony starts, we see, just like any ceremony, there's a assembling together, a gathering together of a group of people. And we see that there's thousands in the passage gathering together. And just something interesting about this assembly is where it took place, okay? If you start in verse 17, it says that Samuel gathered together to the Lord at Mizpah. Now, the interesting thing here is the location, okay? This is a military and political central town near the border with the Philistines. This is not where typical things, when there was a gathering to the Lord, it usually happened at Shiloh which we've seen earlier in the book, or other places that had a, a specific purpose of gathering people together for worship. And so here they come together to the Lord as Samuel is gathering them to, to make an, a, a, an important decision, but it's happening um, in a different place than it normally would when big things would happen like this. Now, like this is a political central place, so for the first time, they're, they're bringing together the people to say, hey, here is our new king. Whenever there was large gatherings... It usually took place around the worship centers, the cities that were designated to worship. And so we see the people gathering here to make this very, very important next step for Israel, and they're gathering in a political and military town. There's just some, there's some symbolic things there that are interesting. You can't overread into it, but it's not where Samuel would usually gather the people together, especially to the Lord. So we see in verse 18 um, that whenever you have a ceremony of people gathering together, you have your opening remarks. And you see that in verse 18, the opening, you gather everyone together, they're here, and Samuel, (laughs) faithful Samuel, opens his mouth again. Talk about a lonely place to be. Hey, everyone, you're gathering together. I know you're very excited, but I just have a few opening comments for all of you. And what does he say in verse 18? Thus says the Lord. Remember, this is how God spoke during this time. He spoke through his prophets. So Samuel is speaking for the Lord, what the Lord has told him to say. And he says, you're gathered together, but thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Uh, this whole event is getting off to an awkward start. You can imagine the, uh, the crickets as it's supposed to be this jubilant, exciting opportunity of gathering together. Samuel gets up and says, you guys are rejecting the Lord, but we're going through. God's, God's told me we're going to move forward with this. And you can, just, you, can, you can almost feel the tension in Samuel's voice, like, we're going to do this. But two chapters ago, just remember what I told you about what a king will mean for our people. Just just remember that. And I I don't know if there was, like, I I think Samuel knew what was going to take place, but you wonder if there's, like, that remnant of hope that maybe they're gathering together and maybe the leaders, because it was the leaders that were pushing this, will change their mind at the last moment and be like, no, let's just submit to God. He's our ultimate king, and let's let him have control like he wants. But as we know, um, this doesn't happen. And so verse 20 and 21, we begin the process, and this is very, uh, this is not, Anything that we'd be familiar with, um, except for maybe drawing a name out of a hat. Okay, back during this time, a lot of decisions that um, they felt were big decisions that were going to be made were done by lots, casting lots. And so, just picture they drawing the name out of a hat. We don't know exactly what this looked like, um, but that's the best uh, idea that we have. And so, you see here, um, it's good to know just some of the societal construct of Israel during this time. So you see it through those verses, the people. It's the whole nation, Israel. Then it breaks down to the next level, you would have tribes. How many tribes were there? Twelve tribes, okay? So you see the next lot, the breakdown, you have the people, Israel, the tribes, Benjamin. Then you had clans, okay? Clans under each tribe. And this one was the Matri, the family, the, the clan. And then under that, you had family, which Saul was of Kish. And so you see that these are the levels by which the lots were cast. All right, and they did this um, when they came into the promised land. Like, think about 12 tribes. Do you think 12 tribes weren't going to be like, I want the place by the water. I want the place, like, up here. Like, nobody wants to be, like, up on the Rocky Mountainside." okay? So when they came into the promised land, they cast lots for which tribe would get which piece of land. Uh, if you remember in Jericho, uh, when Achan stole stuff, and they weren't supposed to. They were supposed to destroy everything. Achan steals. The leaders can't figure out who it is but there's problems in the camp. And so they, what do they do? They cast lots to find out who stole from Jericho. So it was a way that God still had ordaining power over the leadership. And when they had no decision or it was a big decision, they said, God, we're going to cast lots for this, and we want you to direct it. And so it's interesting, even as they're rejecting God, saying, we're doing this, we want a king, Samuel, give us a king, they're still, what are they still doing? They're relying on God's, like, perfect plan. How many times do we do that? Isn't it interesting how many times we're like, no, God, like, I'm doing this, but I would love if you could still bless me, you know. As I'm doing what you don't want me to do, just, oh, Lord, please, give me a good day today. Pour out your blessing on my life. Keep me safe, you know. Uh, give me that new promotion at work. Uh, and we just, like, that's how we think. And uh, all meanwhile, we're rejecting God, saying, but God, still, we know you ultimately have control, but uh, we're going to do our own thing. And so you see here, there was a common way of doing this, and they're identifying The new king. That was the next part of the ceremony, and we don't know how long this took, but I'm guessing it wasn't a short thing. Uh, They had to slowly narrow it down, and then they would move the tribe up, Says they would bring them up to the front. You could sense the excitement building, right? Our tribe was chosen, Benjamin, and then it gets like even our clan was chosen, and then it goes down to the next family, the family of Kish, and there they cast each family member in that family, and Saul is chosen. Very interesting, like something that we're not necessarily used to. But you see God is still in complete control here. And then we have him identifying the new king of Israel. Thousands are gathered for this event. So then we get to verse 21 to 23. And I don't know if you've ever been part of an unplanned part of a ceremony where just like things like you have your schedule and you know what's coming next. If you've been to a wedding and somebody faints, um, you have... Like, something crazy happened. You're like, I just, we didn't expect that to happen. I'm just, like, trying to picture this whole thing. We finally, Saul is the one, okay? He's given, the, and, and then they're like, bring him forward, and he's nowhere to be found. Uh, with all the pomp and circumstance of, like, that video of Queen Elizabeth, like, what if that day, that morning, they're preparing, they bring the carriage up to Buckingham Palace, and they're like, we're ready, the television cameras are there, and uh, you see the guy run out. Talk to the security guard, um, and he goes, we can't find her anywhere. Like, she's gone. Anybody know where Queen Elizabeth is? Like, she's disappeared. Um, like, that's kind of the, like, King Saul, here it is. This is the family. God has given us our first king. Let's bring him out, and he's nowhere to be found. A lot of confusion. So you see in verse 21 that this begins to unfold. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So you have this unexpected happening. And so they inquired again of the Lord. Like, is there a man still to come? Like, did we get something wrong? Did, like, you know, was the manifest wrong of the people that are in this family? No. Is there still a man that's going to come forward? And behold... It says, he had hidden himself among the baggage. Uh, Now, I instantly think of, like, an airport, and there's, like, the baggage thing, and him, like, behind all the suitcases, because that would be a great place to hide. If you're a kid, behind the suitcases is always a great place to hide. In the suitcase is good. You're playing hide and seek. But it's really important. So the only Hebrew word, and it's, it's done a couple times that we see for baggage in the Old Testament, is An armory. An armory. And so this would make sense. It was a military town, and so they probably had an armory. It was a place where they would put all their weapons. And in in this day, you had to always be ready for attack. They are by the border. It's going back and forth. It's the never-ending war. Israel-Philistines, Israel-Philistines. And so where is he hiding? This grand moment, and Saul was in the armory you know, we're studying Saul week to week to week, and so you begin to learn a character. It's fun doing this, going through the Old Testament, because you see characters develop. Uh, it's, it's better than a movie. We're, like, doing episode by episode of, like, we see Saul coming and learning about him. In chapter 9, verse 1, we're introduced to this guy, okay? Now he's made king, and he's hiding in the armory. I think Saul's true character is being revealed here. So Saul's primary responsibility given to him by God when Samuel first met him is he says, your sole purpose is going to be to protect and fight the Philistines for me. That was his only job. This is what I got for you. This is what you're going to do. Fight the Philistines. And so isn't it ironic that he's hiding where the weapons are? He's hiding the exact same spot that the most, one of the most common Bible stories that ever take place is what? David and Goliath. Where does Saul send his men to go get his armor so that a little shepherd boy will fight his battle for him? The armory. You see a pattern developing in his life where there's a lack of faith, a lack of courage, a lack of trust in what God is doing through him and in his life. Saul's hiding in the armory. Um, if this wasn't red flags for the leaders, um, you can see how emotion plays in this whole story, and how emotion plays in our lives, like, just think about the excitement is building. Like, you would think that when they found out, the leaders, that, like, you know, this guy that's, like, taller than anybody else, he's good-looking, like, he is the macho king that we want, he's hiding. Like, you think, hopefully, at some point, like, like reality would over, overcome, like, emotion of the moment and say, wow, this is kind of a red flag. Like, is this really who we want to, to rule us? to take care of us and lead us. (laughs) But you see, that doesn't happen. And so we have the actual, finally, then they ran and took him. (laughs) I love, that's a, we could skip right over that. Then they ran and took him from there. It's not like, hey, Saul, it's time. Like they had to take him from the baggage, the armory, and say, it's time to go be crowned king. So they took him from there. And then verse 23, then they ran, uh, verse 24, and Samuel said to all the people, So now our ceremony is there. The unexpected thing is taken care of. Saul's put up with Samuel. And Samuel said to all the people in verse 24, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Again, Samuel faithfully trying to point everything to the Lord. Listen, God is in control. He has chosen Saul for you. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Now, When they do it in England, you heard it, they say it three times. But during the ceremony, as Queen Elizabeth is going down the streets, you hear the people chanting, long live the queen, long live the queen. And it's this, it's this like mantra they use of excitement and celebration for their new queen. So we don't know exactly what that looks like, but I'm just picturing the people, okay? Long live the king, long live the king. And here you have Samuel looking on and you have God looking down. And you hear him and he's like, man, long live the king. And and here the people have finally gotten what they want. What did they want? They wanted a real protector, a real person to fight their battles. They wanted a real savior. They wanted a real leader. And you just wonder what was going through Samuel's mind and then the mind of God sitting there going, have they forgotten everything I've done for you? God's like, I am faithful. I have fought your battles for you. I have been a faithful, faithful, faithful leader for you through the wilderness. You guys remember that I provided, like, for food for you every single day along the way. I provided food. Long live the king. Long live the king. Don't you remember that I, like, parted a sea for you? I have fought your enemies for you. Long live the king. Long live the king. And the people finally get what they want. And yet, it's amazing because we see the faithfulness of God in display, on display here in just amazing ways. And it would be easy just to kind of skip 25 to 27 and be like, eh. Like, it's kind of just the closing part of the story. Um, it's the boring part. It's the part where you do, like, at a wedding. It's like the final announcements where everyone just wants to get out of there. But it's like, hey, here's where the reception's going to be and all that. Everyone's kind of checked out. But there's some important things here in verse 25 to 27. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. Remember, this is a first-time thing. So they got to set up some, like, ground rules here. Like, what is a king? How does a king operate? How does this work with our government? How does the religious arm of our country, who's been doing everything, now, like, work with a king? So he sets up the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. So you'll see there's no uh, marching through the streets or praying. It's kind of an anticlimactic ending. Like, long live the king. Okay, procedural stuff. Now everyone go home. So that's like a major difference of what we would have seen um, in Queen Elizabeth. But he sends everyone home. And Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. So he's not going to some palace at this point. He's not going to some uh, fancy place that they built for him. It says he went home to Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Wow. I mean, think about that for a moment. Like, this is just the enduring love and faithfulness of God. Here, God has just been rejected. I mean, this is like the pinnacle moment where the nation of Israel says, no more Yahweh. We want our way, okay? Like, we are done with God, all right? No more. And here he's rejected Yahweh. And then it says this, though. It says, God raised up men of valor, to protect Saul, to protect Saul, and to make sure that he would be okay and that he would be able to carry out what he was going to do in his role. The faithfulness of God on display. But then, verse twenty-seven just really like it, it kind of sums up. You know, if if you're if you're new to the Bible or haven't been tracking with us um, on where we're going, you're like, well, well, how did we get to this point? Like, why? Why did Israel, who overall God was giving victories, but it had been a slow fade, it's always a slow fade, where they had continued to turn their back on God and say, we don't need God. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to say, hey, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God, and they continue to do it and say no. And so verse 27 kind of gives us the, the boiling down of what was at the heart of a nation but then who is also at the heart of individuals of that nation. And it says this in 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So if you, have, if you read any good, like, Shakespeare or anything, you know that um, the whole monarchy and the whole royalty thing, like, it, it makes for great stories because there's always conflict, and there's great like, things in history that have happened with King Henry, and all, and all these things. We see Saul goes home, and there's already people that want to take him out instantly. But what's at the root of that for these people? It says, how can this man save us? See, what was happening with a whole nation, and then this is a smaller group, but it, it, it's speaking for a whole nation, is they were looking to something other than God for salvation, that's exactly what they're doing. Like, how can this man, their whole motivation was they wanted to be saved. They wanted to have a better life. They wanted to be the greatest. They wanted to win battles. They wanted to do all these things. They wanted someone to, that was real, that they could worship. And what do you see here? How can this man save us? There was a selfish motivation in all of this that, can, that, is so, that really took root in this whole country. See, the root was a desire for something other than God that would bring temporary self-satisfaction and a feeling of salvation. The people felt that if they had an earthly king, their lives would be better. Remember, a coronation is the ceremony of crowning a sovereign, where a person sits and takes the throne, or place of power. You know, in closing, as I was, like, just walking through this passage and thinking through, like, well, how does this story apply to today? I think... um, a lot of us, I think a lot of us follow Israel's example in this story. And here's how we do this. So just like on the big stage, okay, there was a ceremony and coronation that took place. I think in our lives every day, there's little coronation ceremonies that take place on the stage of our hearts. Every day, we, we wake up, the curtain opens on the stage of our heart, and we have these battles of of putting God in his rightful throne, his rightful place on the, the heart of our lives, and we, and, we, and we battle with saying, you know what? Today, today I'm gonna put someone else there, something else there in the place of God, and I'm gonna, that, that's gonna be my focus. Anybody with me on that? Anybody feel that? Don't we battle that? Like our, our lives are this stage where, where God's story is unfolding, but how many times, like, you know, Christians, like when we come to Christ, Christ is now our new focus. He's the one that's transforming us. He's our object of worship. He is now the king of our lives. But how long does it take for us to begin to say, you know what? Um, I think there's other things that I love too. And It's a slow feed. It's not like this, this thing that just happens overnight. But all of a sudden, you there's a new hobby. God blesses you with a family and kids. And all of a sudden, man, like God... I know that you want all of me, but I'm just going to, like, I'm going to move you over just a little bit. You're still, you're still sitting on the, the throne, like you're here now, um, but I'm just going to put a couple other things here. And then it goes a little further, um, and also we're like, hey, God, do you mind just, like, I know you're still on the throne, but do you mind just, like, moving over just a little bit more on the throne of my heart, right? And, and then all of a sudden, it's been, it's been years, and something comes along, and you're just like, God, I still love you. I still, like, you're still a part of my life, but boom, and we just push God right off to the side, we don't even realize we did it. Like a lot of us wouldn't have been like, if I came up to you and you're like, yo, hey, Chad, is God on the throne of your life Like, Yeah, man, of course, I love God, you know? <laughs> but if we really got into it and started talking with any of us, with me, and we start saying, really, okay, so, so what does that look like? What does it look like that God is sitting on the throne of your heart? There's only, there's very few passages that are repeated in both the Old Testament and New Testament verbatim, okay? There's a lot of symbolism, there's a lot of truths that are taught But there's very few verses that are said verbatim from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Here's one of them. So we should take notice. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart. With all your what? Soul. And with all your what? Mind and strength. We'll get there. Strength. in this one. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Then it takes it even a step further in the Old Testament. It says, this is so important that you love with everything, with all, that I want you to teach them diligently to your children. They need to consume. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Okay? Fast forward, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37-40. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Brings in the old, that Old Testament passage, say, this is important. I'm repeating almost verbatim the same exact truth that was told way back when, that God wants all of the heart, all of the mind, all of the soul. So why repeat? I think God and Jesus both knew. No, they did know, Okay that every human being has a war of sovereignty in their heart. Every one of us has this war. Some of us, it looks more intense right now than others. Some of us, it plays itself out over a long amount of time. Some of us, it's an everyday struggle. But there's a war for sovereignty of your heart. And we have these constant coronation ceremonies going on where we choose to love other things and worship other things more than God. So it's easy to say, but I just want to give you a quick litmus, okay? So how... If you're sitting here and you're like, yes, I have that, how do you know? Or you're like, Brian, I don't know if that's where I'm at. Here's three ways that you can know. I call it the three T's, okay? You guys have all heard them. Time, talent, and treasure. They're a great litmus for you to say, am I where I need to be with my relationship with God? Is God sitting on the throne of my life? Go through those three things and ask yourself questions about them. Time. You find time for what's important to you, don't we? Every one of us does it. We're all busy. busy. You know, I, one of the things I'm fighting in my life is when people come up to you, I never, ever, ever, if I do it, just say, everyone is. But I go, people come and be like, how are you doing? I'm so busy. You know, don't we all, who said it? Like, I'm so busy. We're all busy, okay? Because we choose to be busy. And because we make time for what's important to us. And that's okay. Like, I live a busy life because I make my life busy. That's okay. But I need to be busy. Sometimes where I have to challenge myself is, am I busy doing the things that God wants me to do? And you can do that doing your hobbies and doing the things you love and loving on your kids and loving on your spouse and loving on your job. You can do all those things as long as you're also doing the things that God has called you to. Time. Talent. What do our actions say about what we do? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do what? All to the glory of God, right? Do all to the glory of God. So God's not saying there, like, don't do anything but what I tell you to do. Like, no. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, just do it for my glory because I'm on the throne of your heart. I need to be. Like, I need to be all. I need to be everything. And then the last one is treasure. This is a great indicator of where you are. Matthew 621, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Great litmus. If you, I would ask you to write, like, if you're not taking notes, write those on your phone, time, talent, treasure, and just ask yourself questions this week at some point. God, right now, if I were, I would say that you're on the throne of my heart But I just need to do this test. Be honest. Like, I want to be honest with you. You be honest with me. Is my time, my talent, my treasure really about you or is it about other people, other things? Because God, show show me how I can get this right. I need to get this right. See, Israel was not able to accomplish the mission that God had for them because they replaced him with something earthly, an earthly king. But we all do that. We all do that. So this morning, um, what is occupying the throne of your heart? Who have you coordinated above God as an object of worship in your life? I want to end with this verse, and I'm going to put up on the screen because I wanted us to see it. Um, You know, we can choose who sits on the throne um, of our lives now, but the fact is that there's only one king who God will ultimately put on the throne. There's only one. Okay, and so when you know the big picture, we have such an awesome responsibility to say, "All right, I'm going to then like look forward to this thing." And so it comes from Revelation nineteen eleven to sixteen, John's vision of what's to come. Okay, and so I want to read through these verses. Follow along with me on the screen. Powerful, powerful verses. The heading we won't see it as we read, but it says "Christ on a white horse." Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head and on his head were many crowns. Many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. There's this mystery. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with... That with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the only coronation that matters. Right there. You know, like, Queen Elizabeth is an amazing person of history. She really is. Like, she just, like... First of all, she's living forever. She's ruling forever. But then, you know, through Netflix and different things, like her story and her life is living out before us. You know, at the end of the day, though, like she's going to be forgotten. Isn't that such a crazy thing when you have a person of history that, like take the biggest person that you look at in history, like, and you say, wow, they're going to be forgotten too? This right here, the ultimate coronation when God says, my son is taking his rightful place on the throne and we're going to rule that's the one that matters. But we have this awesome, unique opportunity that while we're here, while we live, that we have the opportunity to say, you know what, God? I'm going to join this. I'm going to join this mission. I'm going to put you in your rightful place on the throne of my heart, and let's go do the mission that you have for me and be blown away by what God does through his power if he has his rightful place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For this morning, God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just stop for a moment and just pause, and we, we just ask, God, are you in your rightful place on the throne of our heart? Are you, are you where you need to be? God, I pray that we would, we would take seriously the opportunity that we have as your children to love you with all our heart, our soul, and mind, all of it, God. God. We have an amazing opportunity. Help us, help us God, to, to look at our time, our talent, and treasure and just, be, and just be honest and have a conversation with you. God, show us where we need to make you Lord. God, you're not just Savior. You're Savior and Lord. So help us to live in that power that you've saved us, but now you're the Lord of our lives. Help us not to leave either half of that out, God. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. May we go out of here today living under its power and transformed by it. In your name, amen.